If you would, turn in the Word of God to Acts chapter 12. Uh, We're going to summarize some thoughts from Acts chapter 11 as we continue our study. We're going to focus on chapter 12 today, and actually the the content of Acts chapter 11 will come back as we move through the book of Acts. We'll constantly refer back to that. But we are in Acts chapter 12 today. I'm going to read verses 20 through 25 to begin our time together. Uh, And I will remind you as I've come in today, and many of you have flaunted your UK blue, uh, that we are moving through the book of Acts, and we're talking about loving your enemies and (laughs) things of that nature, and you're being very unloving today, some of you. And I never made mention of this during the season, um, but, but I will today, because no matter what happens today in the game, Tennessee did beat Kentucky twice this year, so I will make mention of that now to hedge before the game, but uh, anyway, Acts chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 20, if you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word. We, we gather as the body of Christ, we, we gather as the people of God, we, we're not, again, isolated individuals who gather here for devotions on our own. We are a body, and we come together as the church, and we say, Jesus, tell us what you would have for us today. Jesus, call us to yourself again so that we might see you high and lifted up, so that we might, we might make you known in the world. Jesus, change us today as your body, as your people. Hear the word of Christ, Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and he took his seat upon the throne and he delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last breath. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service bringing with them John, whose name was Mark. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your church. And you have been so kind to us today and allow us to gather around your word, to to sing, to, to even force ourselves to be reminded of what is most important, what is of most value, the gospel, Jesus, the church, the mission that you have called us to. And God, I pray in these moments that we would wrap all of our lives around Jesus, that that we would bring all that we have and all that we want and all of our goals and all of our ambitions, all of our hopes and dreams, we would bring those to the feet of Jesus and, and we would say to him, do as you please. God, I pray that our lives would be, would be crucified, would be mortified, would be, would be destroyed to the extent 
that they are not in line with Jesus and His glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. John Patton is one of my favorite missionary stories. The story of his life among the New Hebrides in the 1800s. Charles Spurgeon uh, gave John Patton the name King of the Cannibals. He was a missionary who worked among cannibals most of his life, savage folks. And as Patton prepared to go to these people, he was approached by an elderly Christian who had heard of what he was doing. And he walked up to John Patton and he said, The cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. Because just a few years earlier, two missionaries had gone to this same people group. And just as they had gotten off the boat, just as they had reached shore, they were killed and they were eaten by cannibals. And so this elderly Christian in the context of his church walks up to him and says, you can't do this. You will be killed and you will be eaten by cannibals. And yet Patton and his first wife arrived on an island called Tana in 1858. Patton at the time was 33 years old. And and after being on the island just four months, his wife and his son died of sickness. And yet, still then, after being warned, don't go there. After being uh, immediately faced with difficulty on the island, John Patton stayed there alone among the cannibals for four more years. And during that time, he was constantly threatened. His life was constantly in danger until eventually he left the island and he went back home. And he wrote these words. He says, the natives were cannibals. And and occasionally, they ate the flesh of their defeated foes. They practiced infanticide and widow sacrifice, killing the widows of deceased men so that they could serve their husbands in the next world. And, And these are the people that he had given his life over to, that he had lived with for four years. And he he returned home, and instead of just forgetting about these people, he traveled about Great Britain and Australia and, and mobilized more missionaries to go back to this island where he had lost his wife, where missionaries are being killed by cannibals. He is mobilizing teams of folks to go back and minister the gospel there. Eventually, John Patton married again, and guess what he did? He took his second wife back to the island of the cannibals, to a new area, Onawa. And eventually, this whole island came to faith in Christ. And before the end of his life, he could write and say, 12,000 of these cannibals came to believe the gospel in the New Hebrides. What a powerful testimony of courage. What a powerful testimony of the authority of Christ in one's life who even in the face of death would say, no, we're going back. No, these are people for whom Christ has died. We're going to proclaim the gospel, sending more missionaries in to threats of danger, even risking his own life. And it's exactly what Jesus promised in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 
When he would say to his disciples who were asking, are you going to restore the kingdom now? And he says, that's none of your business, but here's what I'm going to do. My spirit is going to come rest upon you. The spirit, the power and presence of my kingdom is going to rest upon you. The same power that raised me from the dead. The same promise from God that declares you are sons of God in me. That spirit is going to rest upon you and you're going to be able to stare down death and proclaim Jesus is Lord. And that's going to be a sign of my power in the world is your boldness, is your courage to stare down death and suffering for the sake of my message. And we've seen that throughout the book of Acts. We've seen the disciples imprisoned. We've seen them beaten and flogged. We've seen them stoned to death. And what has undergirded the church throughout Even as Stephen would say, as rocks are bouncing off of his head, I see Jesus standing. I see the kingdom before me. And it has propelled the church from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. And in Acts chapter 11, as I mentioned earlier, in Acts chapter 11, what we see that has formed is this solidified body of believers. Acts chapter 11 talks about the church in Jerusalem. Peter stands before them and he gives an account of the second Pentecost among the Gentiles that we talked about last week where the Gentiles are speaking in tongues and the Jews are standing back saying, what in the world is going on? The opposite of that had happened in Acts chapter 2. And we see this church in Acts chapter 11, the church in Antioch. After Stephen is stoned, many of the believers scattered to this very Greek city. Antioch was was so Gentile in its culture, in its religion, in its commerce. And yet believers have gone to this city and they just keep preaching the gospel. They've left Jerusalem and Judea in fear and they're in this Gentile city proclaiming the gospel. And what happens there? A vibrant multicultural church forms that we're going to talk about next week. The leadership in Antioch was made up of people from all over the world. And this church becomes a mission-sending church. It's actually the first place we see the term Christian. They're called little Christ because they follow Christ. And as we get to the end of chapter 11, the health of this church is seen in that that, that these Christians in this Gentile area believing the gospel, they turn around and they begin to send funds back to Jerusalem, to Judea, to serve the churches there in light of a famine. But, But we see this powerful church forming in Jerusalem to Antioch from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. We see what we said in the beginning were the acts of Christ in His church. Jesus raised from the dead hasn't stopped working. He continues to march to the ends of the earth and we see it in Acts chapter 11 with these two churches. But the churches in Acts chapter 11 are immediately contrast it with what goes on in Acts chapter 12. We find a king who is full of himself. We find a king with fake glory and fake power. And the power of the church is contrasted with Herod. Notice verse 1. About that time as all of these things are happening in Jerusalem, in Antioch. This would have been 12 years after Pentecost. 
Herod, the king, he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This Herod of Agrippa was ironically known as King of the Jews. And he had been given power from Jerusalem, Judea, to, to Samaria. And he ruled over places that were teeming with Jews. And he was known as King of the Jews. And yet, even though he was their king, he was constantly controlled by their opinion. This Herod always wanted to be in good standing with the high priest. And he always wanted to do what the Jews in his area wanted. And right now we see the Jews hate the church. They hated Jesus, those who followed after Judaism, those who were marred in the traditions. They, they, they hated the church. And so what does Herod begin to do? He lays violent hands on the church. And he even kills James, the brother of John. This would have been James that would have been found in the inner circle with Peter and John. This isn't the one who wrote the book of James, Jesus' brother. But this would have been James who was constantly found with Jesus. He kills him with the sword. And notice why. And notice what is driving him. Verse 3. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews. Notice Herod, this king with great power and this great authority, but who's really calling the shots? It pleased the Jews. And so what does he do? He proceeded to arrest Peter. Okay, I've gotten one of Jesus' right-hand men. Now I'm going for the next one, Peter. He would have been a trophy Christian for Herod. He preached the first sermon in Jerusalem. He's called all kinds of trouble. If I can kill him then they're going to love me. And so he arrests Peter. But notice this. This was during the days of unleavened bread. The, the, the Jews are celebrating the Exodus. They're celebrating the Passover, deliverance from Egypt. And when they seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Again, who is calling the shots? He's doing whatever the Jewish people think would be pleasing to them. He kills James. They hate him. Now he arrests Peter. But hold on. We can't interrupt your festivities. You're celebrating unleavened bread, this, this ceremony where the people of God were delivered from Egypt so fast they couldn't leaven their bread. You're, you're, I, we, I know what's going on with you. You're celebrating the Passover. We'll wait till after the Passover. We wouldn't want you to have to come out for an execution during your celebrations to the festivities, ironically what happened to Jesus, but we wouldn't want that to happen again. And so you just have fun, you celebrate, but notice who's calling the shots. The Jews. This voter block that he wants to appease. And this man who's called king of the Jews. And yet they are calling the shots. And then Peter in jail. We, we see throughout the, the, the next section of the passage, Peter is in jail, but we see in verse 5, the church is laid out in prayer. The word used there to describe prayer in verse 5, it, it describes the church as being stretched out. 
It, it describes the church as having open hands. They're in a posture of desperation, waiting for God to provide. Peter is in jail. The church is stretched out in prayer. And in verse 6, what is Peter doing? Well, he's laid out too. But he is laid out asleep between two soldiers. It, it, isn't that a picture of irony? That, that Peter in jail between two soldiers, the church is pleading for him. The church is actually awake through the night, begging God to deliver Peter. And what is Peter doing? He's asleep. This picture of contentment and trusting the Lord. How do you sleep on death row? Well, confidence is in Jesus. And then we see in verses 7 and 8, this angel comes in to where Peter is, and there is this light that shines and, and probably blinded everyone else that is there. And this cosmic warrior is standing there. But what is Peter still doing? He's still asleep. This cosmic warrior has to kick him in the ribs and say, get up. And we see a description. It's almost like, it's almost like a bad school play. It's almost like the plays at church where someone comes in and they're waiting for the next cue and the person's not listening or paying attention. It's almost like this cosmic angel comes into the prison cell and he's got this blinding light and he's got a sword in his hand and he has to kick Peter and say, get up, man. It's time to, you're supposed to be up at this point. You missed your cue. And he kicks Peter, and then he calls him to get dressed quickly. The, 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 the picture being painted here is full of irony. It is meant to be humorous. It, it is meant to display the control of Christ over the situation and the foolishness of men who, who are trying to oppose the church. And, and the angel tells Peter, get your clothes, let's get out, tie these things on. Peter, the whole time, we even see in verse 9, he doesn't know what is going on. It's almost as if he is sleepwalking through these soldiers, sleepwalking through these iron gates, and he ends up on the street wondering what in the world happened. Notice verse 11. When Peter came to himself, he says, Now I'm sure the Lord has sent his angel. That's supposed to be funny. The blinding light, the sword the kick in the ribs, and you don't know what's going on, Peter? Oh, now, out in the street, making sure he's all together. Now I'm sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod. But notice these words, from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And that's supposed to be full of irony there. Here you have the Jews, they're celebrating Passover. They are celebrating Exodus, which symbolizes what? Deliverance. All the while, they are clamoring for the execution of Peter. All the while, they are shouting for the imprisonment of Peter. Do you see the irony? They are celebrating deliverance while they are calling for bondage on Peter. And Peter says, the Lord did this. And he has done the exact opposite of what the Jewish people were expecting. Actually, he used their Passover feast to rescue me. 
They are celebrating Passover and this foolish king allows me to stay in prison and he doesn't kill me. And that's exactly what leads to my release. Do you see the irony? All of this is to be funny. It is to be humorous. God is literally making fun of Herod. He is making fun of the Jews who want his people executed. And he's saying, see how foolish you are? And it only gets more funny. Notice, or funnier, verse 13. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came and answered. And she recognized Peter's voice. But notice what happens. Notice the humor. And in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. You see how funny that is? Here's a man who was just delivered from prison by a cosmic warrior at the hand of God. And now he gets to the church and he can't get in. He can't get in. She's so excited. She runs in and she tells the people, Peter is here. She sees him but forgets to open the door. But it it, it gets even more funnier. Verse 15. Then they said to her, you are out of your mind. You're crazy. You're a fool. Now remember what they're praying for. What are they praying for? For Peter to be delivered. And she says, Peter is at the gate. Well, you're out of your mind. Do you see how humorous that is? But she kept insisting that it was so and kept saying, and they kept saying, it's an angel. You're a fool. It's his angel, by the way. They've killed him. He hasn't been delivered. What kind of foolishness are you talking about here? Can you imagine? They're praying, Oh God, you are sovereign. Would you deliver Peter from prison? Would you deliver him from death? Would you shut up? He's in prison. God, would you deliver him from prison? Would you deliver him from death? It is a ghost. It's an angel. It can't be Peter. Do you see how humorous that is? Do you see how ironic it is? And and this is the humor of Scripture. God does this over and over to show how foolish we are. And here the, 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 the church doesn't trust him. They're trying to tell their own story. But notice, Peter continues knocking. Literally, he is beating the door... Now, can you imagine him? He just delivered from prison. What if somebody sees me out here? And he's beating the door to get in, and they were amazed. But but the point of this section is God is saying, if you were in control, you would be hopeless. Do you see how silly you are? And, And that section ends with Herod finally figuring out what's going on. And this happens over and over in Acts. In chapters 3 and 4, they're having a meeting about Peter and John and they look out the window and they're out there preaching the gospel. Herod wakes up the next morning. He's out again? This has happened before. And what does he do? He's so angered, he begins to kill soldiers and then he has to go to Caesarea, which is down by the coast, for some me time. Herod, this king of the Jews, can't do what the Jews want And he's so angry, he's so frustrated, he has to take a vacation at the beach. And and all of this is told in very like sitcom-like fashion. 
It's almost silly. First of all, we see that Jesus has already told the story of James. James comes to Jesus early on and he says, Jesus, I want to sit at your right hand. Can John and I sit at your right and left hand when the kingdom comes? And Jesus turns to him and says, Oh, that's not up to me, but I'm going to tell you what is going to happen to you. You're going to drink a cup of authority, but it's a cup of authority of death and suffering. You're going to be martyred, James. And what has happened to James in the story? He's been martyred. Herod thinks he's done it. But Jesus said this was going to happen to him. Jesus is in control of the story. Jesus has already told a story about Peter. He promised to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. And what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Can you imagine Peter as he is walking through the iron gates, being reminded of that promise? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The gates, literally, of death will not prevail against the church. Even as he is banging on the gates of the church, being reminded, no, Jesus has already promised something glorious. Jesus has promised he will build his church. Jesus has told the story of James. He's told the story of Peter. And even in this section, we see Jesus has already told a story of Exodus. Throughout that whole section, there are little hints of what God is doing. You have a Herod who represents a Pharaoh who has put God's people in chains. You have, the, you have Peter being struck by the sword. Where do we see that in Exodus? Where God strikes the firstborn. He passes over His people and He strikes the firstborn. There are images of the Exodus all the way through where, where, where we even see pictures of, of the ceremony of the unleavened bread where, he is, where the angel is telling Peter, get up, let's go, let's go, get your clothes on. You don't have time to wait around, which I think is funny because the angel's doing it all. Why do we have to get out of here so quickly? I mean, what, what can happen? You're an angel. You are a cosmic warrior. And the point is, there's a picture even of rescue here that takes us back to Exodus. The church is laid out. They are stretched out with their hands pleading to God. And it is a picture of Moses who stood at the Red Sea and parted the Red Sea as he stretched out his hands. The Lord parted the Red Sea and there was dry ground for the church to go through. There is all kinds of imagery here of the Exodus. And it's a reminder that no matter what we see, God is still telling the story. God is still in control. And He's throwing out hints to us and everyone who would read, I am providing deliverance. And there's even a picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ here. Remember when Jesus was first saw, when they first, the, the women first saw Jesus? What did they think it was? It's a ghost. What did this slave girl say about Peter? What were they telling her? It's just a ghost. It's just a ghost. And you're thinking, Did, have you not gone through all this before? I mean, just a few chapters ago, Peter was delivered. You have seen the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ who was brutally crucified. And the point is, Jesus is telling the story and He does so in a very humorous way to make us look like fools, by the way. To remind us, it's not just what you see. And you're not in control of this. It is a call to see the irony in the story that we tell about our own lives. Some of you hijack your story with the whining and complaining. 
Oh my word, daylight savings time. An hour. What am I going to do? Oh my word. And you've hijacked your story today. And you're, wake up. And yet, Jesus steps in with his story and says, your sins have been forgiven. What do you got to complain about? I sent my son to die for your sins, to endure eternal torment. I've given you the gospel. I've redeemed you. I give you an eternal, eternal inheritance. What do you have to complain about? Some of us allow all that we see, all that we touch with our phones and all that's before our eyes to tell a story that's just not true. If you look at the world around you, you see it's all headed to disaster. It's all horrible. And we should be outraged and we should be miserable. And yet Jesus steps in and says, no, 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 no. I'm doing something that the gates of hell can't prevail against. No matter what happens in the world, we win in the end. Some of us, we think death tells the end of the story. The obituary is the last word, and it's not. Jesus steps in in Romans chapter 8 and he tells us that neither death nor life nor any principality, any power, peril, naked, the sword, nothing can separate you from my love. Not even your last breath. Actually, at your last breath, you are enveloped fully into my love. And and what Jesus does is he steps in as we are telling the story, as we are making ourselves miserable, as we think we have control, he steps in and says, no, you're a fool. It's funny the way you tell this story. It's funny the things that you're seeing and you're believing. And this is why it is so important for us to be so saturated in God's story. Not just verses that we throw out, but the whole story from Genesis to Revelation, and just to rehearse it over over and over again in our mind. God created everything. We fell into sin. God has made a promise to us, and He has sent us a king better than any other king who's died for our sins, and He's back from the dead, and He promised us an an eternal kingdom to constantly rehearse that in your mind so that when you see what's before you and you begin to tell yourself a different story, you naturally default to His story. That's why being in the Word is so crucial. Preaching the Gospel to yourself is so crucial. We we talk about social media a lot because it's relevant. Because here's what social media does. It allows us the authority to tell the story. It allows us the authority to see and hear what we want. And that's not good. That's not good for us. That's why we should be in the Word and we should overwhelm and we should saturate all the stories before us with God's story. One of the things social media is going to prove at the end of time is that Bible study and prayer wasn't for lack of time. Because we have plenty of time to be in the Word. We have plenty of time to be in prayer And think about the time you are immersing other stories into your life that aren't God's story. Not even stories that are necessarily wrong. And and then we talk about the Bible. We talk about controversial things in the Bible. And we are shocked and we are scandalized. And some of it is because we just don't know our Bibles. But it's not for lack of time. 
And you are doing yourself an injustice, not rehearsing the story of God, not memorizing the story of God, not looking in the mirror and preaching the gospel to yourself. Just look in the mirror and and, and say, I am a sinner, and yet Jesus died for my sins, and, and God raised him from the dead for you. Look yourself in the eye and preach the gospel to yourself so that when you are despairing, you are whining, when there are shackles on your wrist, you can say, no, God is telling this story. Notice the text continues. He tells the story of Herod in verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. Now, here there is an economic conflict with Tyre and Sidon. Herod is in control of their food, and they need food. And so what do they do? They come before him. They have a mediator in his chamber that they come before, and they are pleading for Herod to give them food. And so what is Herod going to do? Well, he's angry with them. They're a nuisance to him. So what he's going to do is he's going to show them how powerful he is. And he puts on these royal robes. And this would have been an outfit made of silver. And, And so as he stood before the people and the sun shone down on his silver robe, it would have blinded everybody there. He says, I'm going to show you how glorious I am with my outfit of mirrors. Notice, he took his seat upon the throne and he delivered a great speech. And and so with this blinding appearance, and then with this great speech, this is all supposed to be humorous again. Notice verse 22. The people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Now, why are they doing that? Because they want to be fed. They're not doing it because He is a God. They just want food. And so here you see this fake king almost being mocked here. And it is to remind us last week of Peter standing before Cornelius. And as he stands before him, Cornelius, the Roman soldier, bows. What does Peter say to him? I'm just a man too. But what does Herod do? He plays up this fake glory. And the text continues, verse 23, Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. Earlier we saw that an angel of the Lord struck Peter in deliverance. Here we see an angel of the Lord striking Herod down in death. Another picture of the Passover. And notice why. Because he did not give God the glory. And then notice this. This humiliating description. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last breath. Here it's, he's saying he was lower than dirt. This man who's proclaiming he is a king in his robe with little reflectors on it is now being eaten by worms. Some believe it was roundworms that ate him from the inside out. And now he is in the dirt. And it's a picture of just another king that we see throughout the story, Herod's, Pharaoh's, Saul's, Nebuchadnezzar's, David's, Solomon's, who were just made of flesh and became worm food. It's a picture of vanity. Look at this fake glory that I have. Herod's power wasn't earned. It wasn't even inherent. 
It, it was given over to him by family and friends. He is controlled by the whims of the people, and he is so insecure, and he ends up in the dirt like every other king. And it's a reminder the most powerful among us are only temporary kings dressed in mirrors reflecting the sun's glory. The glory that he reflected wasn't even his glory. It was the sun's glory. And without the reflectors, there was no glory. And when we fail to see this, we're like Herod. We are insecure. We are eaten from the inside out. But notice the text continues. This is supposed to be contrasted. Here you have dead Herod. This fake, artificial, nothing of a king, lower than dirt. But verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Do you see the power of the gospel? Stoned, beaten, imprisoned. And yet it keeps marching forward. It, it increases and multiplies. It grows bigger. The, the, the picture of the gospel just inflates before these kings. And it continues to reproduce. It continues to move forward as, as imprisonment, beatings, tortures try to stop it. It's laying waste to kings before them. And, and even this great speech of Herod is to be contrasted with the preach, preaching of the gospel. It says you have this great oration by this great king. But over here you have little poor fishermen talking about Jesus of Nazareth a hick that was crucified, and what message is bringing forth life? Not the king's oration, but the church's. Back in chapter 11, verse 29, we read these words. There's a famine that is predicted. And in chapter 11, verse 29, notice this. So the disciples determined, you thought I was at the end of the chapter, and then I went back to the start of another chapter. You thought we were almost done. Verse 29. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his own ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so in chapter 11, the church in Antioch is so healthy, we're going to help these believers out. And it's contrasted with this king who can't even provide for his people. But, but then we get down to the, to the end of this chapter, chapter 12, and notice, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose name was Mark. So what's going on here? The parenthesis of Herod is the ministry of the church. The church goes to Jerusalem to accomplish what it wants to accomplish. While Herod is being eaten by worms from the inside out, and then the end of chapter 12 is, guess whose ministry keeps moving forward? The church. Paul and Barnabas accomplish their mission while Herod is laid to rest. And this king's legacy is contrasted with the church's legacy. And then we get into chapter 13, and we're going to see this amazing mission-sending church. But all of this is a lesson in vanity. It's a lesson in vanity. The insatiable desire that we have for what appears glorious now, but only leaves us empty. Leaves us empty. What Herod is teaching us is the end result of vanity, pursuing things that seem glorious and beautiful, but are only for a moment. Our best glory is only Snapchat filters for worm food. We're making it look better than what it is, 
But at the end of the day, we're headed to the same place Herod is headed to. And you can only just for men for so long. And you can only airbrush wrinkles for so long. And Herod's glory was borrowed. He was doing it to himself. He had these little bicycle reflectors all over him. It was nothing. And yet the glory of Jesus keeps marching on through his church. The glory of Jesus is found in that he is a former corpse back from the dead. He can't be stopped. And when you lose sight of that, and you try like Herod to grasp glory, to grasp authority that's not yours, what happens? Some of you are here today and you are being eaten from the inside out with worry and anxiety. You know why? You are grasping for control that's not yours. Some of you here today, you're being eaten from the inside out with insecurities. You want everybody to like you. You want everybody to to praise you. You want everybody to accept you. And it's eating you from the inside out because that's not a glory that has been given to you. Jesus is in control of the story. Jesus is in control of the story of glory. Some of you are here today in anger, impatience. It eats you from the inside out. It tears you up. You know why? Because you're a fake king. And that controlling others hasn't been given to you. And yet you are grasping for it. But here, this comparison to Herod and the church also teaches us that what seems to be insignificant is full of weight and full of glory. If we can learn that lesson as we look at the world, and we see things full of power, full of strength, full of glory, and we say, I want that. I want a name. I want security. I I want to be somebody. And so often when we grab it, when we get it, there's nothing there. And what Herod teaches us is, yeah, it's just dirt. It's going to pass away if it's not latched to the plans and purposes of God. But what does the church teach us in Acts chapter 11? These little ragtag fishermen, they just keep marching to the end of the earth. They keep proclaiming the gospel. The, the, The church keeps marching forward. If you looked at this powerful, glorious king, and then you looked at the fishermen in jail... Who are you going to put your bet on to win in the end? And what is Jesus telling us? Latch your hopes and your dreams to the mission and ministry of the church that is seen in the witness that Jesus is King. It's a call here to crucify vain pursuits that only end in death. Some of you are here today and you want to be somebody. You want a legacy so bad. And you wake up every morning and you say, how can I promote myself? How can I put myself out there? And that that name, that reputation isn't latched to Jesus and it's making you miserable. It's making you miserable. No matter the, 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 the letters before or after your name, no matter where your name, what office, door, or desk your name ends up on, if you are not latching that ambition to Jesus, you are just worm food dressed in royalty. That's all you are. And here, Jesus says, no, latch your hopes and dreams to my mission. Parents, this is an important lesson to teach our kids. Many parents are here today and you say, what do I want for my kids? Many of you are just going to say to be happy. Just be happy. But if it's apart from Jesus, they're going to be miserable. 
And by the way, they can be miserable for Jesus and still be happy. We have to teach them that. You realize this. Your kids could be garbage men and women to the glory of Christ and be full of joy. Because some of us are teaching them if they don't have certain letters before or after their name, they don't have a degree on the wall, they're going to be miserable. You can have all of that and know Jesus and go to hell. What is the legacy that you want for your kids? That they would be pretty, that they would have manners, that they would have all of the trophies, any pursuit, even good pursuit. Some of those things aren't wrong. But any pursuit that's not latched to this mission to take Jesus to the ends of the world is going to make them miserable, and also it's a dead end. That's what Jesus is teaching us. I am back from the dead. I can't be stopped. Latch your hopes and dreams to me, a king that was a former corpse. We have to realize all of our plans have an expiration date. All of your plans do. Whatever plans, hopes, and dreams you have right now will end one day. Will waste away if they're not latched to Jesus. And the extent you are connected to the mission of the church is the extent you are connected to something unstoppable. Don't be distracted by the pretty mirrors that end in destruction. But here's the deal unlike Herod, what you must say today is anything I have is from Jesus, I have borrowed authority. Any glory that I have in this world is only from Jesus and must be wrapped up into His power and authority. At the end of the day, I'm like Herod. I'm just a clown king who wants to have it my way. In Jesus, you've already been outed as a pathetic, weak king who was dressed in purple, who was beaten to a pulp, who was hung on a cross and had over your head, king of the Jews, by the way. You've already been crucified. Why are you trying to act like you haven't been or shouldn't be? But in Jesus, you've already been raised from the dead. And in Jesus, you may be eaten by worms for a little while. But the promise in Jesus is even worm food will be raised from the dead. And it's exactly what John Patton said to the man Mr. Dickinson, who said, cannibals, you'll be eaten by cannibals. And Patton responded, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in your years. I love that. You are advanced in years, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. People used to talk to each other that way, and I, I, wish, I wish I could do that quite often. By the way, Mr. Dixon, you look like you're about to die and there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of the risen Redeemer. 